Well, good morning. It's uh, it's good to see you this morning. My name is Steve Cunningham. If we've not had a chance to meet yet, this is your first time. Welcome. Or those of you who are joining us online, welcome. We're glad to be able to do this journey with you. Uh, last week, we started a new series, and the series really is looking at remodeling sometimes our faith. And we talked about this word called deconstruction. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily a new word, a new phrase, but it has changed over the course of time. We talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, but it's important because all of us wind up going through some kind of remodeling of our faith over the course of time, and that's really important uh, on how we do that and to do it in a healthy way. Uh, that's that's so important uh, for us and for our own health. And so last week, as we talked about uh, this idea of deconstruction or remodeling our faith, we, we kind of point out three things that I want to go back to really quickly before we launch into today's talk, and that this, uh, this is important, that reconstruction is a normal and necessary part of growth. Uh, reconstruction of our faith is a normal and necessary part of our growth. It means that we're growing, right? Because if you bought a house in the 1800s at a certain point in time, you're going to have to do some remodeling, right? You're not keeping the same toilet that was there. You're not keeping the same paint, right? You're updating, you're changing, and you're making things healthy and functional, that's a part of it. And the same is true for our life, right? Uh, it wasn't that, you know, at a certain point when you were three or four years old, right, your parents were like, all right, you know how to talk and walk and do everything you do, you're good, right? Move on out. No, you continued to grow and learn and develop more skills over time. And most of us, right, we're still continuing to learn and grow and develop more skills. And that's what's true in our faith as well. So reconstruction is a normal, I want you to hear me say this, is a normal and necessary part of our growth. However, however, uh, this word deconstruction over the course of time, uh, because it's a vague term, right? We talked about this last week, the, the kind of origin of it uh, started in the 60s. And it was really used to say, hey, there could be different ways that you could see value to something. Hold it up at a different angle and see if there's still value coming in at that angle. Uh, we have taken that phrase, and what we've really said is it's, it's deconstruction, meaning demolition. Meaning we're going to kind of wipe the slate clean and see where we are. Well, when we do that, we wind up with spiritual homelessness, and being homeless is not a good place for us to be in. And so we said this, if demolition is the end game, in the end you will have nothing left. And so it's important as we look at how to, if you want to use the phrase deconstruct, but I'm going to say remodel our faith, that we look at what we want in the end. This is important. Because healthy deconstruction is focused on growth. Healthy deconstruction is focused on growth. It's not just focused on taking out, removing, demolishing things. It's focused on how do I grow more? How do I become a healthier uh, person? How does my faith become healthier? What does that look like? And this is important. 
So today I want to, and over the next couple of weeks together, I really want to go back for us, uh, those of you who are just starting off in your faith, and those of us who have been uh, for a long time working on our faith, going back to some real structural issues is what I would say. Some structural issues in our faith because there are certain places in our faith that if, if things are a little off, it can cause the whole thing to topple. And you've met people like this before. If you've been involved in church or something like that, or maybe you've seen in the news, right, somebody who is kind of a, a well-known pastor, a well-known theo, a theologian, and, and they wrote books, and they uh, led big churches, and all of a sudden you hear about them, and they no longer believe in God. Well, how does that happen? How does one completely uh, demolish or deconstruct their faith to that end? And my argument about this would be is that there's some foundational pieces in our faith that if we don't set them correctly, can actually cause the whole thing to topple. And it's actually really normal for us to do. It's normal because sometimes we're taught things as a youngster or a child that, that help us learn some things, but they don't stand up to the rigors of adulthood. And sometimes we, we take an easy approach to faith and we, and we get easy answers for really tough questions. And over the course of time, again, the rigors of life don't hold up to those really easy answers. And so over the next several weeks together, we're going to be talking about some foundational pieces that cause reconstruction or cause sometimes complete demolition of our faith. I want us to think about like this. Somebody said last week, uh, I love the Jenga, but it was so small. And so this week we've upgraded our Jenga a little bit larger. Uh, but I thought about like this. If, if this represents, how many of you have played Jenga before? Raise your hand. Perfect. All right. Most of us. And the, the key is that you, you kind of use three blocks and you turn them one way, and then the next le level, you turn them the, another way, and then vice versa, and you stack them up. And the key is that eventually, when you start playing the game, you have this tower, and you pull out pieces that are loose, and then you place them on top, and you're identifying pieces that are weak or unstable so that you can actually grow the height of this without it affecting the balance. That's essentially the game. But I thought about this as we were, we were thinking about remodeling, and I thought, what would happen in the game is if you started your foundation, but you decided that you were going to do something like this, and now let's go ahead and try to stack these pieces, right? It just is not going to be as stable, is it? So I think it's critical. If we have some understanding like that about why we have to go back through and examine some foundational pieces that maybe aren't right. There was a poll taken several years ago uh, through Christians and non-Christians alike. And the poll asked the question, if you could ask God anything and you would get an immediate answer, what would you ask him? The number one response, by far, by a whole, whole, whole lot, was this. Why does God allow pain and suffering in the world? 
Have you been there before? Have you ever wondered, man, why? And maybe, maybe you would phrase it differently. Why am I going through this? Why are they going through this? Why does it have to happen this way? Why isn't God answering my prayer request? Or I've been praying, somebody, somebody else, they're, they're a terrible person, but my grandma or my, my cousin or my friend or my child. I mean, they're faithful. We're faithful. And we pray, it seems like you don't listen. And it seems like evil is ever increasing and winning, and you're absent. And these questions come back to, I believe, a piece of our foundation that wasn't quite put in just right. The question begs us to look at this piece and say, what did we believe was happening when we put this thing in place? And I would say this, that sometimes our faith goes back to this piece that's not quite right. And we believe, we believe that good things happen to good and faithful people and bad things happen to bad and unfaithful people. And it becomes a block that we lay that eventually we find out just isn't true. Because you've seen it before, haven't you? You've seen people who are terrible people, right? And, and they somehow seem to always win in the end. And you've seen some really faithful people go through some really devastating, hard, tremendous journeys. And everything that's built on top of this block just eventually seems unsteady. Like maybe everything else isn't good. And we've got to completely wipe it all away. In 341, there was a, a guy named Epicurus. And Epicurus was a Greek philosopher. Uh, and he asked some questions about faith and God and Ultimately, these are the questions or the statements that he posed then, and I think we can wrestle with them uh, now as well. And these, this is what he said. If God is not able to prevent evil, then God is not all-powerful. If, if God can't control evil, keep it at bay, then he has no power over some things. And... If he's not willing to, if he's able but he's not willing to control evil, then God is not all good. So if he can do it but he chooses not to, then he must be bad. Or he must not be completely good because he allows evil. But if, if he can't control evil, then he's not all powerful. Can't have it both ways. Because we have evil winning and we don't like that. And so we have to wrestle through some really hard things. So this is what I'd like for you to do today, all right, is to, is to, to think with me on some things. And what I want to let you know, and I've said this for almost 20 years as I've been in counseling with couples who've lost newborn babies, couples who've watched their kids struggle through really difficult things. I've watched marriages break up and end in tragic ways. I've watched people pray over loved ones at their bedside, and, and the outcome was not what we wanted. And what I'll tell you is this. 
There are no easy answers to life's hard questions. We would love for them to be. And my guess is somebody's given you an easy answer at some point in time and you clung on to it. And maybe some of you, you clung on to it until it poked holes. And then and all of a sudden you're like, I don't want to hear that stuff ever again. I don't want to hear God needs another angel in heaven. Makes me sick. I don't want to hear God needed them more than, uh, than, than we need them here. I don't want to hear that. And what I want to tell you is those lie at some foundational pieces that just aren't right. So how do we readjust this to, to have a stronger faith, to have a faith that actually grows? One thing I think that we have to be aware of is this, that deep hurt asks tough questions, wants quick answers, and demands accountability. I want you to think about this in your life, right? When you've been hurt before, what is it that you want? You begin to think of tough questions. Why'd this happen at all? Why is it the way it is? Why am I going through this? Why is there suffering at all? We begin to ask tough questions. We want quick answers. Think about this. Your spouse hurts you in a deep way, right? And then you approach them about it. You say, why'd you do this? And they say, I don't know. Uh, let me think about it for a few months and I'll get back to you. Yeah. That's not how that goes. N not if you want to live, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's the only amen I'll get all day. Uh, <laughs> no. We want quick answers to tough questions. We want quick answers to them. And not only that, but it, we demand accountability. Somebody must pay. Somebody must pay. I want you to think about all the wars, whether, what, no matter what side you fall on, whether you think it was right or wrong, I want you to think about this. Every time something happens, it's like, all right, who pays? Who pays the consequences for this? We demand it. We want accountability. So deep hurt asks tough questions, wants quick answers. And demands accountability. And when we're prone to thinking like this, I can tell you that sometimes we put a false brick in our faith down. And it does not stand up to the rigors of real world issues. If you have your Bible, open up to Psalm chapter 73, uh, and I'm going to set the stage here for you. This psalm was written by a guy named Asaph. Asaph was like uh, the, the Chris Lindsay of, uh, of the Old Testament, right? Asaph is this worship guy, right? He's probably got skinny jeans, cool shoes. He's got a great haircut, right? Uh, he's... I'm just, I'm just saying, he's a cool dude, right? And he's writing all of these, uh, he's not a senior pastor. He's not the, you know, he's, he's cooler than that. He's writing all these cool psalms, right? And, but here's the thing. Most of his psalms, most of them are psalms of lament. Most of these psalms come from a really desperate, broken place. And I want you to hear Psalm 73. This is, this is the worship leader. This is the guy who gathers everybody together and says, all right, here we are. Everybody come together. Let's sing out loud to God. And this is one of them. 
Surely God, this is Psalm 73, verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped, and I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens, and they're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves in violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten opposition. Their mouth lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands of innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishment. And the church says, Amen. You're like, thanks, worship leader. That was a fun song. If we never sing that again? And oh, by the way, Asaph, are you okay? <laughs> Do we need to talk after? But I think if we're honest, <clears throat> there's some times that we feel just like Asaph. Did you catch what happened here? Verse 2, but as for me, my feet uh, almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. What Asaph is, is really saying is, I nearly gave up on my faith. I nearly gave up on God. I, I, I was to the point where I was like, I don't even know what to hang on to anymore. It seems like maybe this is all for naught. Verse 3, he goes on, did you catch this? To talk about the prosperity of those around who are wicked who seem to just get away with all kinds of things they're not supposed to, and over and over and over again, it seems like the wrong thing is winning and the right thing is losing. Verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 13, I think lets us know Asaph's wrong brick. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, and have washed my hands of innocence. See, Asaph had believed that God would give good and faithful people good lives. Oh, if we pray, if, if you do the right things, then man, God is going to bless you abundantly in this life. And it's going to be easy. And then you did that, just like Asaph. And it didn't work out the way you wanted. And so then you began to question Everything else that it was built off of. And maybe it should all be wiped away. If you're there, if you've been there, you're not alone. In fact, the Bible tells us that um, there was a guy who was, the, the, besides Jesus, the best born of woman 
That's what, that's what Jesus says. There's nobody greater than this person. And yet they come to a place where they're experiencing so much pain and injustice that they're like, is this worth it? Is this real? Because I thought something different was going to happen for me, but here I am about to die. This person is John the Baptist. If you have your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1 in a minute, but I want to again set the stage for you. Uh, John the Baptist was commissioned by God even before his birth, that he was going to pave the way for Jesus. He's going to pave the way for the coming Messiah. So his whole life, even before he was born, was set apart. And, and he spends his life preaching out in the desert, preparing the way for this coming Messiah. And he takes ridicule and blame, and people think he's a crazy person. And in some ways he is, because he's eating locusts and wearing camel skin. He's a weird dude, right? He gives his whole life devoted, dedicated, completely sold out to Jesus. In fact, he gets to baptize Jesus. And, and he knows this is a big deal. And he says, listen, I'm, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is the way it's supposed to be. And he baptizes him, and then he hears God's voice. He sees a dove that descends down and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. He gets confirmation that this is the one. But John, because he's standing up for Jesus and the way that God has called him to gets sentenced and put in prison, and he's going to be killed. It's tough news to take. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. When Jesus finished saying these things to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And there was a centurion servant whom his master valued highly. He was sick and he was about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of the elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. He's built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion's servant sent his friends to him saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard that, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, he said to him, I tell you, I've not found such uh, great faith even in Israel. And the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Keep reading on. Soon afterward, another story. Jesus went to the town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. And as he approached the town, uh, the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd gathered uh, from the town with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't worry. And he went up and he touched the briar that they were carrying him on, and all the bearers stood still, and they said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up, and he began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And they were all filled 
with all and praise God. A great prophet has among, appeared among us, they said. God has come to his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout the whole, uh, throughout all of Judea, Judea and surrounding country. And you're stopping for a minute to say, great, but what does that have to do with John the Baptist? Wasn't that what you were talking about? And this is what I want to say. While John is in prison, what does he hear about? Well, he hears about a Roman centurion, by the way, Roman, not one of us. Oh, he, he gets healed. Well, good. Good for him. He's an outsider, by the way. Oh, by the way, they're also in charge of oppressing us. But good for him. Good for him. And then we hear a story about Nain. Nain was about eight miles southeast of where they were at the time and real close or closer to the border of Samaria. There was one road in, one road out. It was a hard trip to go to. And it seems like a story that's way out of the way for one person. Okay, great. You'll go way out of your way for one person. Awesome. By the way, Nain, close to Samaria. Good, good. And you'll heal a centurion, a.k.a. Roman. Good, good. But I gave my life for you. I mean, I, from day one, I set myself apart for you. So surely you got something good for me, right? Keep reading. And John's disciples told him about all these things. Hey, John, you're never going to believe this. Centurion uh, reached out to Jesus, healed. This, this lady uh, in Nain, her, her only son died, healed. Really? Calling two of them, he sent them to ask the Lord, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? A.K.A., what is the deal? A.K.A., hold up. I thought if I followed you, I could count on that and I would put that in place and I could guarantee that good things would happen if I followed you. But I can assure you, all these other people, I don't think they've been following you as well as I've been following you and somehow they're benefiting and I'm getting the short end of the stick and I don't like it. And I'm sick of it. And in fact, if that's the way that God plays, I don't think I want any of this. So are you it, or should I expect somebody else? Now, here's what I know for sure. <laughs> John heard the voice of God. This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. By the way, my wife earlier this week said, you need to work on the voice of God thing. It's pretty lame. <laughs> she might be right. <laughs> so when the man came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? If Jesus was going to heal outsiders and he was going to go out of his way for people, then why wouldn't he do that for John? Well, I think we need to rebuild some of framework of faith. 
And if you wrestle with that, let me encourage you, you may need some restructuring to do. But don't demolish the whole thing. Because again, spiritual homelessness is not a good place to be. So I want to give you a, a six um, things to think about as you remodel. If you found yourself in that place before, the first one is this. Suffering and justice was not how God originally designed our world. Praise God. I love going back and thinking through and rereading our uh, creation account from the very beginning because the, the, our world looks nothing like that, which lets me know that God is an amazing creator and we're pretty great at messing it all up. You ever figured that out about yourself is that you can create some of the biggest messes you've ever been in? You'd love to blame it on everybody else, but it's you. <laughs> oh, man. I, I uh, have a good friend of mine who lives in Michigan, and, and he used to say, man, Steve, it seems like everything you touch eventually will like, you know, any kind of, you're working on a home project and it seems like it always kind of gets worse. And that's why you call me. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> you have that gift. We have that gift with creation. See, God creates and it is perfect. It's good. And we've come along and we have ruined that. And when we say things like, man, all right, listen, God could do something with this evil thing, then we have to acknowledge that if God got rid of all of that, then, then God gets rid of love. Because love requires free choice or free will. When my oldest, Zeta, was uh, just two years old, she got in this phase of wanting baby dolls. And she would, every time we went to the store, uh, would want a new baby doll. And I discovered then, because I grew up in a house of all boys, we didn't have stuff like that, right? And I discovered there's some really creepy <laughs> baby dolls. They do all kinds of weird stuff. I mean, like, there's some that wet their pants, and I'm like, why, why would you want that? I mean, that's something I'm ready for this phase of my life to be over, and you want a doll like that? You know, it just didn't make sense. So there was one that she wanted, and it would talk back to you. And one of the phrases that it would say is, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Let me ask you a question, and all seriously. Did that doll love her? No. That doll had one option of something to say until I took the batteries out. <laughs> I love you. See, God's not that way. He gives you the choice to love him. He gives you the choice to follow him. And that's love. See, we're able to see through the story of creation how God intends for our world to be in, but we don't live in that because we live in a world where God loves us so much that he would say, I'm not going to control you like a doll where all you can repeat back to me is, I love you, I love you, and it means no, it means nothing to us. God says, I want to be in a place where when you say you love me, you mean it, and when you say you'll follow me, you mean it. Suffering and justice was not how God originally designed our world. Number two, suffering and injustice is not a sign of an unloving God. This is huge. 
And oftentimes this is a stumbling block for us in our faith. I want you to think about this. You know the story, if you're familiar with the New Testament story of Jesus, where he, he eventually winds up on the cross and he cries out to his father, why have you, say it, forsaken me? And then we don't read in Scripture, because I don't love you anymore. Nope. In fact, John 3, 16, one of the most well-known verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. See, suffering and justice is not a sign of an unloving God. It's a sign that God loves us. We're going to talk about this more in a moment of what happens after that. But before we get there, I want to point out this. Jesus experienced suffering and injustice and indicated that we would as well. Some of us think, all right, listen, if I give my life to Jesus, surely things will get better. And then they find out quickly, no, that's not generally the case. In fact, sometimes it gets a lot harder. And I want you to know this, if you decide to become a Christian, you need to seriously understand what Jesus says is, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross. He was clear about it from the beginning. In this, I love this, this uh, verse because it's, it's such a reminder for me on many different levels, but he reminds his disciples just shortly before his death, in this life you will have trouble. I'm rem I remind myself of that often because I need to remember Jesus went through trouble and he told me I would as well. If Jesus went through it, I can assure you we will as well. Number four, only God knows what's on the other side of suffering and injustice. Only God knows. What's on the other side of suffering and injustice? This is not to say that every bad thing comes from God or that he willed it to be that way. I want you to understand that. Some of you have been through some really tough, agonizing, horrible things. And what I want to let you know is that was not God's intention from the beginning. I can tell you that because I've read the Garden of Eden story. and He didn't intend for it to be that way. But what I can tell you is that God could, can see something on the other side of that for you. Have you ever tried to work out when you were pretty out of shape? Three of us. Good. It's always three of us, right? Us three need to get breakfast together sometime. Okay. How many of you, the first time back on the treadmill, thought, this is awesome. I want to do this more. But there's something on the other side of that, isn't there? I'll never forget, uh, Veronica and I uh, were taking uh, our third child, our, our youngest daughter, Faith, to the daughter. It was the first time we'd ever went as a big family. 
to the doctor, and she had to get a shot. And she was super not happy about that. Um, and she clung on to a pole with, like, monkey-like strength. It was crazy. Um, and we were newly, we were newly married, and uh, I thought, what? what is this? I've never seen this before, you know? Um, she was petrified. What she didn't understand is that that shot was necessary. She couldn't explain it to her then. Now listen, listen, listen. Trust me on this. It's going to be better for you because all she saw, saw was shot and scary and doctor and needle and I want no part of it. See, only God knows what's on the other side of suffering and injustice. And in this life, some things just don't make sense, and you're right. But what I do know is there is a redeeming God at work who has been at work since he originally created this whole thing, and he's trying so desperately to point you and I back to him. Not in a way that's forceful, you come back and I will eliminate everything, but in a way that says, choose me, trust me, Follow me, even when it doesn't always make sense. See, what was on the other side of Jesus' death? God, why have you forsaken me? Was your life. Number five, your greatest ministry will likely come from your deepest hurt. And I hate that, and I love it too. Can I be honest with you for a moment? <clears throat> okay, good. <laughs> if you're going to leave me hanging, I would just have to be like, all right, fine. We won't do that. Uh, when, I was, when I was young in ministry, um, I wondered why people sat in the back row and came in late and left early. And can I tell you something for just a moment? And I'm just sharing, you can judge me if you'd like to, and that's okay. I was in, I was in the wrong. But I thought to myself, if that's the way you're going to approach faith and church, why come at all? Why show up at all? It wasn't a good thought process. Then I went through some pain and heartache of my own. Went through a divorce, didn't want. It was the most awful thing I went through with my family. And then I showed up to church, and I showed up late. And I sat in the back row. And I prayed nobody would talk to me because I didn't have words. I left early because I didn't want anybody to ask me how I was doing because how I was doing was awful. And then I thought, Steve, shame on you for thinking these people were, were just showing up and like had no faith at all. They were clinging on to whatever little bit of faith was left. And listen, Steve, if you ever decide to get back into ministry again, if you ever feel that calling in your life, then your calling is to use the hurt that you have to help other people who are clinging on to that hope as well. See, I never wanted to go through that hurt. But I can tell you, my deepest, my most important ministry in life is to help other people who think, man, I don't know if it could get any worse than this, and I'm not sure if it's even worth hanging on to anymore. 
to assure you that it is. And if you'll let it, your greatest ministry will likely come from the deepest hurts that you have. In fact, all of the Bible greats share that same thing in common. It's very rare you hear somebody say, man, I was, I was blessed into a really wealthy family. Everything came easy. We were always intact. I was given everything from a silver spoon. I've always followed all the, all the commands in the Bible and done everything perfect. And, and let me inspire you. And you think to yourself, would you just shut up, you know? <laughs> when you've seen somebody walk through the fire and their faith is intact, it inspires you, doesn't it? Last thing is this, and this is huge. God loves, loves, accepts, and welcomes those with serious doubts. That story that we read about with John the Baptist, let me tell you how it ends. <clears throat> Jesus says, Hey, listen, when you go back to John to tell him about this conversation, say this. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised again, the good news is being preached. Oh, yeah, and John. Blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, listen, there is no one in this whole world both before and after, who will ever be greater than John. The same guy who sat in the, in the prison cell and said, whoa, I don't know if this is right. I don't know if I can follow because this peace seems way off. I shouldn't be going through this stuff. And God said, no, 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 no. When you think about me, maybe you're thinking about me wrong. See, I never said it was going to be easy. I never said things were going to go well for you. I never promised you health, wealth, prosperity. I never said your family was going to stay together. I never even said you're going to keep your sanity. What I said was, I'll never leave you in the middle of it all. When we get that piece wrong, boy, it could topple so many other things. When we get that piece right, we have peace when it feels like there is no other peace in the world. You wonder how the, the spiritual giants of the day made it through is because they understood that God was with them come what may. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could praise God going in because they knew no matter what, God was with them. Paul could give his life on the line because he knew no matter what the outcome, God was with them. And the same is true for you. So may the Lord bless you. Keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and give you peace. To him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with tremendous joy. May you be swept away in God's love for you and transformed through the Holy Spirit's power within you. Thanks be to the only God, our Savior. 
who is unparalleled and unchanging, who is matchless and merciful, who is supreme and sufficient, who is before all things and through all things and in all things, both now and forever.